0: Uh, Last week, we began John chapter 10, and we saw that Jesus switched metaphors. He had been, by this point, in Jerusalem for probably well over a week. He went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, and there in chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, Jesus is there teaching in the temple courts and doing ministry in Jerusalem. He talked about, in chapter 8, about how he was the light of the world, and somehow the light bulb didn't go off in the Pharisees' minds. Uh, They were still in darkness. They didn't understand. They didn't believe in Jesus. And so Jesus in chapter 10 we saw last week switches metaphors. And instead of talking about being the light of the world in the darkness of sin, he begins talking about sheep and shepherds. He says, I am the gate for the sheep early in chapter 10. And then four verses later says, I am the good shepherd. And so we talked about that a little bit last week. But it really does beg the question, why does God's word call us sheep? In the Old Testament, God is called the shepherd of the sheep of Israel. The people of Israel are called his sheep. And then in the New Testament, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And we as Christians are called the sheep. Why is that? Well, I think Philip Keller gives us a pretty good idea. Philip Keller was a sheep rancher in Canada for many years, and back in 1970, he wrote a surprise bestseller, and it's called A Shepherd Takes a Look at the 23rd Psalm. And in this book, this is what Philip Keller writes about sheep. He says, sheep require more attention than any other livestock. They just can't take care of themselves. Unless their shepherd makes them move on, sheep will actually ruin a pasture, eating every blade of grass until finally a fertile pasture is nothing but barren soil. Sheep are nearsighted, and they're very stubborn, but easily frightened. An entire flock will start to stampede if spooked by a jackrabbit. Sheep have little means of defense. They're timid. Feeble creatures, their only recourse is to run if no shepherd is there to protect them. This is something I didn't know about sheep. Sheep have no homing instincts. A dog, horse, cat, or a bird can find its way home. But when a sheep gets lost, it's a goner unless someone rescues it. So the overriding principle of Psalm 23 is that sheep can't make it without a shepherd. I want you to read this with me. The overriding principle of Psalm 23 is that sheep can't make it without a shepherd. Some of you still seem about half asleep today, so one more time, read this with me. It'll help wake you up. The overriding principle of Psalm 23 is that sheep can't make it without a shepherd. That's a deep insight, isn't it? And I want to suggest to you this morning that the overriding principle of Psalm 23 is also the overriding principle of Jesus's teaching in John 10. Sheep can't make it without a shepherd. Amen. Amen. They can't make it. Jesus is very clear in John 10 that all of us are sheep. All of us are sheep. You're a sheep, whether you like, thank you very much. You're a sheep, whether you like it or not. You're a sheep whether you like it or not. What you believe or don't believe about Jesus Christ does not change this fact. Regardless of what you believe about Jesus, you're a sheep. The question is, are you a sheep who's going to make it or are you a sheep that's not going to make it? That's the question. And whether you make it or not has everything to do with whether or not you align your life with a good shepherd. And so we're going to continue talking a bit about this as Jesus continues his teaching here in John chapter 10. So make sure you're there in your Bibles. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. If you're there, please say amen. Amen. Here we are. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. May God bless us as we study his word today. Well, in verse 22, the gospel writer John gives us a timestamp to let us know when this teaching is taking place. And he lets us know this time stamp because there is a gap of time between the end of verse 21 and the beginning of verse 22. So remember in verse 21, Jesus was finishing up his teaching after the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the fall feast for the Jewish people. Now he says in verse 22 that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. What is the Feast of Dedication? Today we call that Hanukkah. So this was the winter feast. So Skipping from verse 21 to 22, John gives us that little time stamp. He's at the winter feast, the feast of dedication. He lets us know that two to two and a half months have passed because the Feast of Tabernacles took place in September, October. And then Hanukkah, of course, takes place in our December. And so about two to two and a half months have passed since Jesus revealed to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem that he is the Gate. For the sheep, and that he is the good shepherd. So, what's the significance of the Feast of Dedication? What's the point of Hanukkah? Well, if you've been joining us in recent Wednesday nights uh, for our Wednesday night Bible study, you've become familiar with a villain of the Jews. A certain man in Old Testament times that was one of the most anti Semitic Jew haters in history. His name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We've been talking about him a little bit in our Daniel study in recent weeks because he is described in pretty good detail in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11. Without being mentioned by name, details, incredible details are given about his life. He was going to come onto the scene several hundred years later and God tells that to the prophet Daniel who's able to write that down as a prophecy. Well, who was this Antiochus for Epiphanes? It's important to know who he was because knowing about him helps you understand the point of Hanukkah in the first place. Well, let's go back to the 4th century BC. In the 4th century BC, the great world conqueror was none other than Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great spent 10 years leading his Greek army on one of the most ambitious military campaigns in history. He came down from northern Greece, the area known as Macedonia, and conquered southern Europe and then went into the area of modern-day Turkey and into the Middle East and conquered the Middle East. And then he headed into North Africa and conquered North Africa. He conquered nations and cities and tribes on three different continents in just 10 years. He died suddenly at the age of 32. And so he began this military campaign at the age of 22. He dies 10 years later, suddenly at 32. And because he was only 32 years old, his son was far too young to become the next king, to to become his successor. And so they decided to divide his vast kingdom into four regions and place four of his generals over those regions. Well, the one in the middle, the one that was over the uh, Middle East, was Seleucid, and it became known as the Seleucid kingdom. Well, you fast forward about 150 years And around 175 B.C., the new king of the Seleucid kingdom is Antiochus Epiphanes. So let's put this map up. So Antiochus Epiphanes becomes the king of this region here in the Middle East. So being the leader of the Middle East, that includes Israel. And so he was a king that was, at least in his mind, ruling over Israel. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes was kind of an interesting fellow. He was the world's biggest fan of Greece. Have any of you ever seen the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Okay, a few of you. Do you remember the dad from that movie? The dad loves everything Greece. He thinks Greece is the best thing since sliced bread. And so everything that's great in philosophy comes from Greece. The best language comes from Greece. The best food comes from Greece. The smartest scientists come from Greece. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes was like that, but ten times more. He believed that everything that was the best of humanity came from Greece. And anyone in their right mind would want to become Greece because the Greeks are the highest evolved creatures that have ever walked this planet. Everyone else is a lower life form compared to the Greeks. And so here he was, Antiochus Epiphanes, he loved Greece so much, he decided he was going to make the Jewish people scrap their Jewish religion and become Greek. How well do you think that went over? It went over kind of like a pregnant pole vaulter. It didn't go over too well. And so he thinks he's going to make the Jewish people become Greece they become Greek, and so he decides to outlaw certain things that the Jewish people held dear. He told them they could no longer worship Yahweh. They could no longer worship God. They could no longer offer sacrifices to God. They could no longer rest on the Sabbath day. And Jewish moms could no longer circumcise their baby boys. And Antiochus Epiphanes decided if a mom circumcised her infant boy, He would take that mom and he would crucify her to a piece of wood and he would kill her baby with her. That's what he did. And so he was a vicious guy. He comes into Jerusalem and he conquers Jerusalem. He comes in there and he kills tens of thousands of Jews and he forces an equal number, tens of thousands of more Jews, into slavery. And so he comes in there and then he decides to do the worst thing of all. He decides to defile God's temple that Solomon had built. He comes in, you may remember from history, he slaughters a pig on the altar in front of the temple. And then he proceeds to take the blood of that pig, one of the most unclean, unkosher animals to the Jewish people, and he sprinkles that pig blood all over the temple, all over all of the sacred offerings and all the sacred furniture inside the temple, clears out all that furniture from the temple, and instead he sets up in the side rooms of the temple brothels. And then he takes, after sacrificing that pig on the altar to to God, he decides he's going to make that an altar to Zeus instead. That's what he does. And so that's one of the reasons that Antiochus IV Epiphanes is described in Daniel as the abomination that causes desolation. In other words, he is a type of Antichrist. In the end times during the tribulation, the Antichrist, when he comes, will do similar things that Antiochus Epiphanes did. And so he conquered Jerusalem, and so this happened, and all those sacrifices and all the worship at the temple came to a crashing halt. But three years later, the temple was taken back because God raised up a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus. He's known as the first of the Maccabees. Judas Maccabeus and his brother, they raised a Jewish army, and they proceeded over the next three years to drive Antiochus Epiphanes and all of his Greek soldiers out of Jerusalem. They took it back. And when they took back the temple and took back Jerusalem, Judas Maccabeus declared that from that point forward, the feast of dedication of the temple would be celebrated for eight days every December. They cleared out the temple, they they re-sanctified it, they brought in new furniture that wasn't polluted by what uh, Antiochus had done, they lit the candles, they reinstated the temple sacrifices, and from that point forward, 164 BC, that eight-day celebration of Hanukkah would be carried out every December. Okay, with that in mind, beginning in verse 22 of John 10 here, Jesus is back in Jerusalem, for Hanukkah. It's been less than 200 years since Judah Maccabeus had driven Antiochus Epiphanes and his Greek army out of Jerusalem, but now they've got a new problem. The Greeks were taken care of 150 or so years ago, but now the Romans are occupying Jerusalem. And so as Jesus interacts with the Jewish leaders here in John 10, keep in mind that they've got these few things on their mind. Number 1, They're thinking about how God brought that great deliverer to drive out their Greek occupiers. And now they're thinking about how much they'd like that promised Messiah to come onto the scene and drive out their Roman occupiers. Ever since the days of Judah Maccabeus, the Jewish leaders had envisioned the coming Messiah as someone much different than God had described in the Old Testament. They envisioned this Messiah as coming riding a white stallion with a sword in hand, building a Jewish army to drive out all of their occupiers. This is what they had in mind. And so they hoped, they prayed every day that that Messiah would come as their military deliverer. Ever since the days of Judas Maccabeus, the Jewish leaders had envisioned this Messiah coming as kind of a new King David. In the sense that he would be one, of which the women in Israel would sing, Oh, the Romans have slain their thousands, but the Messiah, he has slain his tens of thousands. In the spirit of the warrior King David, they thought the Messiah would come. The only problem was, that's not what God had in mind, was it? Well, we look further, Jesus is in the temple courts. He's walking in Solomon's colonnade. I believe that's in verse 23. The pillars that supported the roof of Solomon's Colonnade were around 40 feet tall. If you look at this picture, this next one you put up, if you look at this, as he's walking through uh, this Solomon's Colonnade, you can just see these huge pillars, and there's a lot of space in there, so it was very common for groups to congregate there in the temple courts in Solomon's Colonnade. There was a little shelter from the elements, and it was common for rabbis to gather with their teachers around them and teach. So as he's walking through Solomon's colonnade, uh, these Jewish leaders, particularly the Pharisees, it seems, uh, they corner Jesus. They corner him and they start peppering him with a few questions. Verse 24, they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. All their lives, the Jewish leaders had been praying that this promised Messiah would come and deliver them from Rome. They hated King Herod. They hated Roman taxes. They hated having a thousand Roman troops constantly looking at them as they went into the temple to worship. They didn't like being babysat by Roman centurions and Roman soldiers. So they asked Jesus point blank, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. So let's ask the question, had Jesus told them plainly? Well, he didn't come right out to the Jewish leaders and say, Hello, everybody, just wanted to make a little announcement here. I won't take much of your time. I just wanted to let you know, I am the Christ. Yes, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And so make a line, single file, please. I'll sign autographs starting in just five minutes. Buy now and we'll throw in a free chia pet. Now, nothing like that going on. He wasn't saying that to the Jewish leaders. He did, though, say it, interestingly, back in chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman. Okay, remember she said, well, when the Messiah comes on the scene and comes to us here in Samaria, he'll explain everything to us. And remember what Jesus said in response? He said, I who speak to you. I am he. In other words, I am the Messiah. So interesting, in chapter 4, Jesus flat out says, I am the Messiah, to the woman at the well, and then from there to her fellow townspeople in Samaria. He tells the Samaritans, I am the Messiah. He doesn't say it in those specific words, though, to the Jewish leaders, and we ask the question, why? Well, I think F.F. Bruce offers a a pretty good answer to that question in his commentary on John. This is what F.F. Bruce writes. He says it was one thing for him to tell the woman at the well who he was. To her, the term Messiah had purely religious connotations. But among the Jews, it had political and military implications, which Jesus was careful to avoid. That's a, a good point. It makes sense. The Samaritans really, to a large extent, had a view of the coming Messiah that was more biblical than the Jews' view. The Jews were focused on the religious aspect. The Messiah is going to be the Savior in a spiritual sense. Amen? But the Jewish people, particularly the rabbis and the Pharisees, they had really muddied the waters, They had taken the truth from the Word of God in the Old Testament, those Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, and they had mixed in with them wives' tales and and legends and myth. And so they had this kind of conglomeration uh, view of the coming Messiah that was mostly, by the time Jesus was on the scene, it was mostly this idea of this military Messiah. Once again, the guy riding a white stallion with a sword in hand, building an army to conquer all physical enemies of Israel. And so Jesus was very careful. He didn't want to mislead any of the Jews into thinking that his first coming was about being a military Messiah. He'd come on that stallion with sword in hand, but not until he returns. Amen. However, at the same time, Jesus had revealed to the Jewish leaders that he is the Christ. He just didn't use those exact words. I am the Messiah. Notice how Jesus responds here in verses 25 and 26. He says, I did tell you But you do not believe the miracles I do in my father's name speak for me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. In other words, Jesus says, I didn't need to come right out and say, hey, everybody, here I am. I'm the Messiah. I didn't need to do that. He didn't need to say that. When you think about it, saying I am the Christ, that's easy. But proving it, that's the hard part, don't you think? And so that's what Jesus says here. I I didn't need to come right out and say it because that's easy. Any fool can just lie through his teeth and say, hey, I'm the Messiah. I have proven it with my miracles. I've proven it with my actions. Jesus had opened the eyes of the blind and he had uh, healed the cripples and he'd cleansed the lepers. And when he spoke, he spoke as only the Christ and the Son of the living God could speak. He spoke with authority, he spoke with first hand knowledge of God and the kingdom of God. In other words, he did things that only the Christ and the Son of God could do. And he said things that only the Christ and the Son of God could say. So any reasonable person should have connected the dots and received the message loud and clear, Jesus is the Christ. Amen? Amen. So God has removed all excuses. Anyone today, based on the overwhelming evidence that God has given us, that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Any person alive today, any person alive back then, is without excuse. The evidence is overwhelming. Now in verse 26, Jesus presents us with a little bit of a conundrum. Notice what he says in verse 26. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, I bet you've done, when you've read this passage in the past, what I've done myself for years. I read past this verse without, not th- without thinking much about it, and I'm on to verse 27. But most of us in this room have been Christians for a while. And I want you to notice why this verse presents us with a conundrum. Those of you who are seasoned Christians... Let me ask you this. When someone wants to become a Christian, when someone wants to become a follower of Jesus Christ, what's the first step? First, they have to not even confess first before they're baptized, before they confess first. They have to Starts with a B first. They have to believe. Don't you agree? If you don't believe it, you're not going to confess. If you, don't it, going to if you don't believe it. You're not going to repent. If you don't believe it, you're not going to get baptized. Right. The first step is you've got to believe what someone's telling you about Jesus Christ. So you could say it this way. If you want to become a sheep of Jesus Christ, you have to first believe. believe. That makes sense, right? But even though we've said this for years, we look at this verse, and that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is saying. You do not believe because you're not my sheep. Isn't that interesting? We tend to think we believe and then we become his sheep. Jesus says, you do not believe because you're not first my sheep. That's a bit of a conundrum here. So follow me on this. The Jewish leaders here in John 10 weren't Jesus's sheep because they didn't believe in Jesus. But Jesus says they didn't believe in Jesus because they weren't his sheep. So what comes first, the chicken or the egg? What comes first? (laughs) The egg. No, I don't know. Do we become Jesus's sheep after we believe in him or do we believe in him after we become one of Jesus's sheep? Well, as we might suspect, the answer is both. Now, how is that logically possible? Well, this is what we call a paradox. It's a seeming contradiction. But in the kingdom of God, it's true. It's true. The Bible teaches that God wants all people to be saved and believe the truth about Jesus. There are many verses that say this. One of my favorites is 1 Timothy 2, 4. that says, God, our Savior, wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So God wants everyone saved, right? right. But somehow in his sovereign wisdom, Jesus Christ has chosen who his sheep are going to be. And with that choosing comes the empowering to believe. Is this burning any brain cells yet? Because it burns mine. With that choosing, even though God wants everyone to be saved, somehow at the same time he chooses some. And when he chooses, he empowers them to believe. Interesting. So if someone puts me in a theological headlock and makes me give an answer to the question, Dane, what comes first, Jesus' choosing or my believing? If someone's got me in that spiritual headlock and I've got to come up with an answer, I've got to say God's choosing. Because throughout Scripture, I think it's proven over and over again that God always is the one to take the initiative. Right? God takes the initiative. He always takes the initiative. When I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Before I loved Christ, Christ loved me. Before I chose Christ, Christ chose me. So do I believe that I have to believe in Jesus in order to get saved? Absolutely, I have to believe in Jesus. But I would have never been able to believe in Jesus had he not taken the initiative. I would have never been able to believe in him had he not chosen me and drawn me to that point where I could believe. Now, someone might respond, someone that's familiar with the theological nuances here, and say, are you saying then, Pastor, that you are a Calvinist? Do you believe that God picks and chooses who is going to be saved and who is going to hell? No, I do not. I am no Calvinist. But I do agree with the Calvinists on this point. God always takes the initiative. If he did not take initiative, you and I could never be saved. Wouldn't you agree with that? Even those of us that believe very strongly on free will. And that we must choose to believe in Christ and choose to repent of our sins and choose him as Savior and Lord. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is given to every man, woman, and child. And the cross was for anyone who would accept Christ. We do not believe in a limited atonement. We believe that he died on on the cross literally for anyone who would bow their knee and confess Christ as Lord and follow him. Amen? Amen. But we do believe that it was God who took the initiative. So we look at this verse. What a wonderful thing. They're not his sheep. Why? Well, because they didn't believe. But at the same time, they didn't believe because they weren't his sheep. Warren Wearsby, I think, says it really well. He says, from the human standpoint, we become his sheep by believing. But from the divine standpoint, we believe because we are his sheep. There's a mystery here that we cannot fathom or explain, but we can accept it and rejoice. In the Bible, divine election and human responsibility are perfectly balanced. For those of you familiar with the argument between Calvinists who believe in predestination, God picks and chooses who's going to be saved, and the other camp, the Arminians, which our church leans this direction, the Arminians who believe in the free choice of man to accept Christ, there's this argument going on century after century among Christians. One of these days we'll get to heaven and realize that both are somehow correct. How is that humanly possible? Well, maybe it's not, but it's divinely possible. Somehow the both come together in perfect balance. Well, in verse 24, the Jewish leaders tell Jesus, don't keep us in suspense. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And once again, Jesus doesn't speak the exact words they're fishing for. He doesn't say, okay, I am the Christ. But in verse 30, Jesus actually takes it a step further. When he says, I and the Father are one. In other words, he doesn't just claim to be the Christ. He claims to be God in human flesh. Now, how well do you think the Pharisees will respond to that? (laughs) Not so well, will they? He doesn't claim to be God the Father. If he was making that claim, he would have used a different Greek word here. When he says, the Father and I are one. We can't pick up on it in English, but if you go back to the original Greek, it's a very specific word for one. It's a, it's a neutered term in a sense. It's not male or female. And the way that word is used, it's very clear that he is not God the Father. And God the Father is not the Son. But together, they are one God. Kind of blows our minds, the idea of the Trinity, doesn't it? It's a paradox, but it is true. He and the Father are one. He's not the Father. So those that just believe that Jesus was God the Father, there's really only one person. There's no Trinity. That's not biblical. Jesus was not God the Father, but together with the Holy Spirit, the three are truly one. Well, as you might guess, the, the Jewish leaders aren't going to respond too kindly to what Jesus says here. Look at verse 31. We're going to pick up there and finish the chapter. Starting in verse 31, again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the father. For which of these do you stone me? Well, we're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be broken. What about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the beginning. In the early days, here he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. I love the end of that chapter. Well, as expected, the Jewish leaders weren't too thrilled with Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. They didn't like that too much. They pick up stones to stone him. You saw the picture on the screen a little bit ago of Solomon's Colonnade. I don't imagine there were a whole lot of rocks in Solomon's Colonnade. It was a nice, well-kept area inside the temple courts, right? So where'd they get the rocks? My best guess is they were packing. (laughs) When they knew they were going to corner Jesus, man, they shoved some in their pockets and underneath their robes, and they were packing just in case of emergency. If they had an opportunity to stone Jesus, they were ready to go. So these guys, they have their rocks in hand, it appears, and they're ready to stone Jesus. They didn't like him saying, I and the Father are one. Now, for several thousand years, Jewish men and women and children have memorized and prayed one of their most important prayers that they pull right from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Jewish people have pulled the Shema prayer. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear which is the first word of this prayer. And so if you go there to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the first part of that Shema prayer goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Say that with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one. Then in the next verse, it goes on to say what Jesus said was the greatest law in the Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so there, that Shema prayer, these Jewish Orthodox believers that are standing and accusing Jesus here in John 10, they had probably prayed this Shema prayer thousands of times since they were little boys. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one day after day, week after week, year after year. They're praying the Shema prayer. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and says, the father and I are one. And they say, what? This completely goes against what we have prayed and believed for so many years. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now you're saying you and the Father are one. This cannot be. This is blasphemy. How dare you claim that you are one with the Father? Well, I can't imagine, like I said, there were a lot of stones there, but somehow they get the stones and they're ready to chuck them at Jesus. And notice what he says in response in verse 32. I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And their response in verse 33, we're not stoning you for any of those, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So let me get this straight. Chapter 5, Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda. Remember, there's a man who's been crippled there for 38 years. And what does Jesus do? He heals him. And the Jewish leaders are all ticked off at Jesus because he healed the man on the Sabbath. They hate the fact that Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. You fast forward to chapter 9. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind, a blind beggar there on the streets of Jerusalem. Jesus heals him. And the Jewish leaders once again get upset because he healed him on the Sabbath day, right? They hate the fact that he healed him on the Sabbath day. And so they hate the fact that he healed the guy of uh, his crippled legs on the Sabbath. They hate the fact that he healed a blind guy on the Sabbath. But evidently, that's not why they pick up stones to stone him. They say that, that stuff is bad, but it's not that bad. What we're really ticked off about is what you said. Now, let me get this straight. Didn't they just say, Jesus, why don't you speak to us plainly? Okay, you asked for it. I am... The Son of God, the Father, and I are one. What? And they're up in arms because Jesus simply did what they asked him to do in the first place, tell him who he was. They evidently hated the fact that he was the Son of God and claiming as such, even more than they hated him doing what he did on the Sabbath days. In verses 34 to 36, Jesus plays a little mental gymnastics with the Pharisees. Personally, I think he's messing with them a little bit. If you look at what Jesus says in verses 34 to 36, he goes to a very obscure psalm, Psalm 82, verse 6, where God calls some of Israel's judges gods with a little g. Okay, so they're called gods with a little g. So Jesus does make a good point here. I do think he's messing with them, but it is a good point. It's not necessarily heresy to refer to a human being as a little g god. Most of the time it is. Most of the time, it's heresy if you call a human being a God. But evidently, since God did it at least that one time in the Old Testament, it's not always heresy. And so this little theological nuance Jesus throws out at them, and they're kind of getting their brain cells fried. They can't quite wrap their minds around it, so those rocks start to slip out of their fingers a little bit. In verses 37 and 38, Jesus ends his conversation with the Pharisees by urging them to believe the truth that his miracles are speaking. In essence, Jesus says, even if you don't believe anything I say about who I am and what I came to do, believe my miracles, because these miracles reveal beyond a shadow of a doubt who I am and what I came to do. Amen. Amen. And the Jewish leaders try to arrest Jesus and kill him, but he escapes their grasp. Uh, Many Bible commentators point out that they think this was a miracle. So Jesus wasn't the rock in the sense that we look at movie star, the rock, Dwayne Johnson. He wasn't Arnold Schwarzenegger. He wasn't Stallone, man. He didn't muscle his way through the crowd. Yeah, he was probably a pretty strong guy since he had been a carpenter for most of his life. But we believe this probably was a miracle. Even though they surrounded him with stones in hand, he was vastly outnumbered. He was able to make his way through the crowd. And he goes miles from there to the other side of the Jordan River to where John the Baptist had been baptizing in the early days. And there it says many people gather around him. And I love how the chapter ends. Many people believe Jesus. In other words, in the context of what we've been learning in this chapter, many people began to follow the good shepherd. Isn't that awesome? Back in verses 27 and 28, I went over those verses kind of quickly, but in closing, I want to share with you four characteristics of Christ's sheep that are identified in verses 27 and 28. So fill in those blanks on the back of your handout if you've got those in hand. Here we go. Characteristic number one, Jesus' sheep listen to his voice and trust his leading. We find that in verse 27. Read that with me, please. Jesus' sheep listen to his voice And trust his leading. Swindoll I think says it really well. He says if you were to travel the world. And hold an informal conversation with Christians in different countries. And from different cultures. You'll eventually hear them describe a common experience. The inner prompting of the Holy Spirit leading them to do certain things. Or to go to certain places. I'm amazed by the similarities in the descriptions of people living on opposite sides of the globe. Isn't that true? God, no matter what culture you live in, no matter what country you live in, no matter where in the world you are, what what language you speak, or what an actual Christian worship service looks like in your hometown, you'll find this around the world. Christians having this similar experience that they feel the Holy Spirit leading them to do certain things or to go certain places. We just had this happen yesterday, so a group of us guys met over at Denny's in Victorville up the street from Costco for our monthly men's breakfast. And after the breakfast, our waiter, who had served us last month when we were there, nice guy, uh, I asked him, hey, is there anything we can pray for you about? And he says, yeah, same prayer as last time, because we had done this last month. I said, okay, so he comes over, and uh, we pray over him. We pray for him and his family right there in the middle of Denny's. And then that was pretty cool. We get to the amen and I sit back down to talk to the guys again. Next thing I know, the waiter is back at the table with two of his co-workers that he brought from the kitchen. They'd like prayer, too. Cool. So we get up and we're laying hands on him. We're praying over him. Well, meanwhile, the Gideons are having breakfast at the table next to us. I go over to say hi to the Gideons and one of the Gideons says, yeah, will you pray over us. Sure. Guys, come on over. So the impact guys come over. We're surrounding the Gideons and we're praying over them. And so I'm I'm leaving like on cloud nine. Man, God's really using us here. This is awesome. And we have the bill all paid. I'm going to the front door. And as I pass by and I'm about to reach for that front door, there's a guy sitting on my right waiting to be seated. And I'm like, nah. And I, I keep going for the door. And then I Holy Spirit's just talking. Give him an invitation to church. You've still got one left. Okay, And so I get out the invitation. Hey, I just wanted to invite you to church. It's Christmas season. We start talking. Turns out he has kids. I'm able to tell him about the cookie celebration going on today. And he says, where are you? And he's asking these questions. And he says, I see the address on here. I'll try to be there tomorrow. You never know what God's doing. But doesn't he do that at times? The longer we serve Jesus, the clearer you can hear the voice of Jesus. And sometimes he's just clearly saying, I want you to say something to that person right there. And you're like, no, uh, that's not my thing. I'm not an evangelist. He said, I didn't ask you if you were an evangelist. I told you to go talk to that person right there. And I've told many of you the story of I was going down Highway 2 and I passed a hitchhiker. First thing that goes through my mind is my wife will kill me if I pick up a hitchhiker. And I feel like God's saying, Dane, make a U-turn. Go back and get him. And the story that came out, that's amazing. I don't have time to share it with you today, but God is amazing how he works as his Holy Spirit prompts us to do things. If you've been a Christian a long time, you should be better and better at being able to recognize the voice of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus' sheep listen to his voice, and they trust his leading. Amen? Amen. Amen. Characteristic number two, Jesus' sheep follow his commands. We see that in verse 27. Read that with me. Jesus' sheep follow his commands you don't just listen to his voice you don't just trust his leading you follow his commands he makes it clear in verse 27 that his sheep follow him they follow his voice in other words they follow his commands bottom line if you're one of the good shepherd's sheep you will obey his commands if you're not you will not obey his commands Remember that one of the biblical tests to see if you are really in the faith, to see if you are really a Christian, is the obedience test. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 8, verse 31. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. He could have just as easily said, if you follow my commands, you are my sheep. That's one of the quickest ways to tell if you're really following the good shepherd. If you're doing whatever the heck you want to do, Regardless of what the word of God says about it, you're not one of His sheep. If you're doing what you feel like doing, I feel like having sexual relations with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I feel like moving in with them. I feel like doing drugs. I feel like quitting my job and being good for nothing. I feel like gossiping. I feel like any number of things. If it's about me, myself, and I, you failed the obedience test. That's a quick indicator that he's not our shepherd and we aren't his sheep. Jesus makes it very clear his sheep follow his commands. Never forget that. Don't call yourself a Christian if you do your own darn thing. Call yourself a Christian if he truly is your Lord. He is the one you follow. He is your shepherd. Finally, number three, characteristic number three of Jesus' sheep Jesus's sheep will live forever. We see that in verse 28. Read that with me. Jesus's sheep will live forever. Read it like you're actually excited about it. Jesus's sheep will live forever. Woohoo! It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Jesus says in verse 28, I give my sheep eternal life. Amen. Back in verse 10, Jesus made it clear that he gives his sheep full, abundant life. We talked about this last week. There is no life more abundant, no life more free than the life of a committed Christian. Jesus Christ offers his followers a life on earth filled with peace and hope and lasting purpose and joy. But praise God, that abundant life does not end at the grave. It doesn't end at the grave. Amen. I need you to pray for me this week. I got a call from a local mortuary, and as many of you know, I'm on call with most of the local mortuaries if there's a family that wants someone to officiate a service for their loved one but doesn't have a church or a pastor in town. So I get these calls periodically, hey, can you officiate a service? And, and so I got a call this last week, and the lady at the funeral home, I hadn't dealt with this one before, but she says, this is a tough one. It's a teenager that committed suicide. And the family has made it very clear they don't really want any Bible verses and they don't want any prayers. They're atheists. I said, okay, I'll I'll call the mom. And so the next day I did. I called the mom and what the funeral director had told me was true. They didn't want any Bible verses. They didn't want any prayers. But she added, we don't want to hear anything about she's in a better place. So they don't want to hear about heaven They don't want to hear about God. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to hear any prayers. They don't want to read any scriptures or hear any scriptures. And so I found myself thinking, what does that leave me with? Because when I go and give a service, God has given me an ability to speak hope into a crowd, even if I'm pretty sure that person wasn't saved. I can share the good news of Jesus Christ and that there is hope beyond the grave. I have to go into a service this next weekend not being able to speak freely about hope beyond the grave. Not being able to speak about the grace of Jesus Christ. Not being able to speak at all about heaven. And so I'm going to be in prayer this week and I need you to be in prayer with me. I have to somehow communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ with my actions. Because I'm not allowed to do it with my words. And that's a tough situation to be in, but God can do it, can't he? Much like Jesus didn't flat out say, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ. He was able to communicate it clearly with his actions. And I believe there is a way, I'm not sure how yet, but I believe there is a way that I can slide in there and do what God has called me to do without using the normal words that I would normally use or the normal scriptures or prayers I would normally speak. God is good and he has a way to help speak through us that beautiful message of eternal life in Christ. It's a terrible thing when we have people around us that have no hope beyond the grave. Finally, number four, the fourth characteristic of Jesus's sheep. Jesus's sheep are safe and sound in the father's hands. Please say that with me. Jesus' sheep are safe and sound in the father's hand. We find that in verse 28. I want you to bask in Jesus's words, church. No one can snatch my sheep out of my father's hands. Isn't that good to know? No matter how hard hard that old devil tries, he cannot snatch you out of God's hands. Oh, these words are so comforting. If Jesus is in the driver's seat of your life, if you are one of Jesus' sheep, no one, absolutely no one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. People can criticize you. People can slander you. People can slap you and even kill you. But no one, absolutely no one can pluck you out of the loving Father's hands. The good shepherd will see to it that once you start following him, no one can take you away from him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for sending Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you this Christmas season that you came, Lord, and you grew to manhood. You were 100% God, but at the same time 100% man. And you went through all the pains and trials and difficulties and even sicknesses to some extent that we went through. And Lord Jesus, you overcame. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our good shepherd. We thank you for leading us. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us to listen to your voice. Help us to obey your leading. And help us, Lord, to bask in the beautiful truth that we get to spend eternity with you. Full, abundant life here on earth and even more full and even more abundant life with you in eternity in heaven. Lord Jesus, help us to be able to follow you well and share this message of hope with those around us. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray if there's anyone here in this room or listening to this broadcast that has never placed Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of their life, that they would make that decision today. Lord Jesus, I pray that they would come to you and say, please forgive me. I have sinned against you. I have broken your commands. I do not deserve your forgiveness, but in your grace, please forgive me anyway. Lord Jesus, please wash my sins away and come into my life. I don't ask that you just be my savior. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be in the driver's seat of my life. I want you to be my good shepherd, and I promise to follow you and obey you and trust you. For the rest of my life. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen.